Um, again, it really is good just to, just to pray with God's people. You think of just even what we're doing in prayer. I mean, just joining our hearts together, knitting our hearts together in worship of God as you know, James is, is leading us. Uh, but we are all with, with one, one voice in, in agreement, bringing these requests uh, known unto God, where we are not only united to Christ in so doing, but we're united to one another uh, with one heart before the Lord. And it's just a great blessing, I know, in my heart. I know it's for many of you as well. Uh, well, we're going to continue our study through the, uh, the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we've already been, been seeing a number of different things. One of the, the main goals for this, this sermon series has been to, to see Jesus, uh, as we've seen Jesus interacting with so many different people. We see Jesus uh, teaching and, and, and ministering among the folks there uh, in Galilee and in Capernaum. And we're going to continue to see some of those elements uh, this morning as well. And you may even notice as well, as you're looking in your, in your bulletin, again, we're covering a, a lot of ground here. Uh, starting in, in chapter 4, verse 35, and going through chapter 6 and verse 6. And there's a, there's a lot that is here. We could, we could end up spending just a sermon on any one of these, these paragraphs, these sections that are here. But what, what we're going to notice this morning as well is that uh, as we look at these passages together, there are some running themes. Uh, there are some connections that are made with one after another that I believe the Holy Spirit, uh, through Mark, uh, wants us to understand, wants us to pick up on, uh, that I'm convinced are going to uh, encourage and bless our hearts uh, this morning as God speaks to us. Uh, so uh, as it is a big section, we're only going to read one of the sections that are in here, though, uh, the longest one, and it's going to be from Mark 5, uh, verses 21 through the end of the chapter, verse 43. So would you please stand uh, for the reading of, of God's Word? Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately... The flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him, the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they had said, what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. 
And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, your power in Jesus Christ is beyond comprehension. Lord, as we see the work of your Son here on earth, God, I pray that this morning as, as we see these things, that you would just give us hearts that are swelled with humility, that are full of, uh, Lord, of just your, your compassionate love as we see you at work, as we know Jesus Christ more and more. God, I pray that you would remove whatever hurdles and obstacles we might have in our hearts and minds this morning so that we can see you clearly. God, I pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Winston Churchill, uh, one of these uh, extremely important figures of the 20th century, uh, the great prime minister of England. Now, he was a person whose accolades are synonymous with, with leadership, uh, inspiration, uh, bravery in overcoming uh, the regime of Nazi Germany to uh, secure the freedom of the British uh, during World War II. He was beloved by his nation, and rightly so. There was an article that was written about Winston Churchill uh, in the New Yorker magazine in the mid-20th century, which described him in a way which uh, there was no previous record of someone being described using this term before, but it's one that we're all familiar with now. Uh, The writer called Churchill larger than life. It's Uh, In fact, a well-known enough phrase that the first thing that pops up on Google with that phrase is the old Backstreet Boys song, Larger Than Life, for any that might remember. It's at least been around for that long. Uh, But it carries around, it carries this this idea that the individual has such a personality, uh, such charisma, that they seem to somehow even uh, transcend uh, normal life, normal existence. Uh, the bar- that barriers of a limited existence uh, cannot contain them, that they must push through them all. Uh, they supersede what it means to live as a human. The irony is that for someone who is described as larger than life, Winston Churchill's grave is just as full as the nameless tomb beside his own. Churchill, like us, is not larger than life. Life is not something that we can transcend and exist outside of. The demands that it makes are something that each and every one of us are subject to. Now, I know, you know the phrase larger than life, you know, it's, uh, it's a figure of speech. Um, yet, when we think about it even a little bit more literally, it's actually 
a completely appropriate description of Jesus Christ, that he is larger than life. As our passage describes, he is not one who is bound by the restrictions and confines that this world demands. It is not simply a personality description, but one which actually describes the relationship of the universe and its creator. He is larger, grander, he transcends his creation. Jesus is shown to be not only the one with authority over all things, but superiority, greatness over all things as well. In fact, as we're going to be looking through this section, what we'll notice in particular is that because the power of Christ transcends all earthly barriers, so then let us trust in His wisdom and trust in the might of our Savior. So there's two main things we'll be noticing this morning, uh, that Christ is the Lord of the land and that he is the Lord of the law. As we see specifically the Mosaic law. But he is the Lord of the land. He is the, the Lord of this earth, of all things. And as we go back to the end of chapter 4, is really where our section begins, we'll see that his, this authority, his lordship, is over nature. His lordship is, is even over nature, as Mark is trying to communicate to us. You uh, might remember from, uh, from last week, as Perry led us through a section in chapter 4, where we looked at the teaching of Jesus Christ. As there were such great crowds around Christ, hearing his teaching concerning the kingdom of God, hearing his teaching concerning the gospel, and in particular, as we saw, the, the heart that needs to be prepared uh, for the gospel to, to bear much fruit. And as the crowds were hearing this, they came in great numbers, so much so that Jesus had to back away from actually the land and had to go into a boat so that he could have some space and so that people could hear him as well. And our text tells us as well in in, in Mark chapter 4 that, well, if anyone has ever done any significant or long amount, sometimes not even a long amount, of public speaking, that on the other end of that, oftentimes you are completely wiped out. You are so tired from whether it's the, the, the stress, uh, whether it is the, uh, the, the mental activity that, that is going on. And Jesus, after he has finished teaching, the disciples, they go out into the lake on the boat, and Jesus tells us he falls asleep. Uh, there's even a story about uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great British uh, minister and pastor, that there was one sermon that he was preaching with such ferocity, uh, just with such energy that as he finished his sermon and he prayed and said, amen, he literally took like two or three steps back where he was confident there was a chair behind him and he collapsed right into it and he apparently even fell asleep right there behind the pulpit until the service was completely over. I don't know if that's exactly what it looked like for Jesus, but it wasn't too long apparently until he fell asleep on the boat after he was finished teaching, certainly from exhaustion. And this storm arises, it tells us. The well-known passage of, of Jesus and him calming the storm. The storm arises there in the Sea of Galilee, this place that is well-known for incredible storms taking place. The, the Sea of Galilee is actually 700 feet below sea level. And it is surrounded by hills and mountains, the highest of which is Mount Hermon, which is 9,000 feet above sea level. And it just creates uh, this area where there is all the, these dynam- dynamics of air pressure that go on that just create these incredible storms uh, right there on the Sea of Galilee, even to today. And this storm takes place uh, there when, while Jesus is there with his disciples. 
And I don't know if any of you have ever been stuck in a storm while in a sea or even on Lake Murray, uh, but it is something that, I, and I do know that there are some of you who have, um, but it is something that there's hardly any other time that you probably feel more vulnerable than when you're out in the middle of water and there's a storm that, that comes about. There's nothing to grab onto. In fact, just even down is death, or seemingly so, around you. There's, there's nothing around you. Just Your goal is just to try to get to land. And the storm is so great here right now that uh, the text actually tells us that there is water that's being taken in on the boat as well. So the disciples are obviously in great fear. In fact, there's nothing overall which reminds us of our incredible uh, impotence, our lack of power, our lack of control than the weather. I mean, just what a couple days ago, I don't know if any of you got the alerts on your phone as well, but that there was a tornado warning. Uh, that was, I was actually here at church when that happened, and the, um, the, the warning of it was, you know, try, find shelter, find some interior place if, if you're inside. And, I mean, the, the warning, I mean, granted, we have a few minutes, I mean, none that I know of touched down while we were here, but, you know, there's supposedly you get a couple minutes warning for that, but the, but the warning is essentially this, hide, you know, run away, it's coming. Uh, you think about how much control we have over that. There's a tornado coming. Just, just get out of its way. Try to do whatever you can to protect yourself. That's what kind of control we as humans have over something like a tornado. Uh, you, you think of like a hurricane. We lived in Florida for a number of years, and we would get our seasonal, right about this time, we would be getting our seasonal warnings of hurricanes that come, and we get plenty of time for, for, uh, for when we know they're going to be coming. Actually, too much time, it feels like. We have like two or three weeks where everyone is just stressing out. Everyone is buying up all the water at the grocery store and, and even toilet paper even then too. It wasn't just a corona thing. Um, and so people are they're, they're going crazy for, for weeks and weeks. And so, but essentially it amounts to this. You have two options. It's either hide or it's run away, go somewhere else for a while and just hope your house survives it and that your insurance will, will cover you. I mean, there's nothing. Which is kind of, like We have no control over the weather. And even if, even if you want to say, well, we have the whole climate, uh, you know, the, the, the climate change thing. Okay, if we have any control over the weather, we're making it worse. If, you've wanted, if, you, if you want to go down that road. then, And we have no control over the opposition of the weather whatsoever. And here's this storm in the middle of the sea. And the disciples are reasonably scared because their hope, you know, Jesus Christ right there, is sleeping. And what does it say? that Jesus does in chapter 4 and verse 39. It says there that he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus rebukes the storm. I just yesterday rebuked my dog for whining and she did not listen to me, Jesus has more control over the winds and the waves than I do over our dog. And I mean, while that's, that's, it, while that's comical and kind of humiliating on my, on my part, um, the strength of Jesus Christ, though, that which we have absolutely no control over whatsoever, Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, and they respond, and they are silent. They say, yes, master, 
we will stop. Jesus is the Lord of the physical world. There's nothing which can take place, nothing which can transpire, good, bad, whatever, that Jesus Christ does not have ultimate authority over. The wind and the waves, they obey Him. His sovereignty is something which does not have certain measures and certain limits. Mark is telling us He is Lord over nature. And he goes on, he says, I want, I want to continue to paint this picture for you, who this Jesus is. He's Lord over nature, but, but look what else he's sovereign over. It, it's not just that, keep reading with me in, in Mark, starting with verse 1 of chapter 5. But he goes from there and says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but, the, but, the, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. This is one of the most descriptive and graphic accounts of Jesus' ministry, this this encounter he has here with the demoniac. It is really an an appalling scene. I mean, just trying to really imagine what was taking place here. This man lived in the tombs, rock-hewn caverns furnished with dead man's bones and carpeted with filth and vermin. He was a mass of bleeding lacerations, scabs, infections, and scar tissue, living in a delirium of pain and masochistic pleasure, leading to Jesus' claim upon the life of this man and his authority over those who had hijacked this man's life, only to end in thousands of pigs plunging to their deaths, resulting in a business owner and a town begging Jesus to get out of their town. And to underscore the severity of power that these demons had upon this man, again, the demon's name is Legion, whether, you know, whatever the quantity was that was going on here with this man, we don't certainly know, but what we do know is that a Roman legion Again, a term used for a a group of Roman soldiers. It consisted of 6,000 foot soldiers 
120 horsemen and a bunch of technical personnel would be grouped as a legion. So if that is at all indicative of the amount of power and just quantity which was plaguing, which was destroying this man, uh, then it is something which is hard to ultimately comprehend. That's the main thing, though, that Mark wants us to see here is just how strong these evil forces are and how Christ can simply send them away whenever he chooses. This man and this town, it says, was helpless against this legion. Then how Christ gives them permission, it even says, to go where they want to. The authority of Christ goes beyond just simply what we can see. Just simply, the again, the wind and the waves. Even in the invisible world, the spiritual world, Christ reigns supreme. You know, and not all demonization is so appalling either, so stark as it was here. In the uh, book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, Paul writes there, speaking of, of Satan and his power, in verses 14 and 15, he says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. If we think that Satan's forces are only those which manifest themselves with a certain level of ugliness, then we are fooling ourselves. The beauty of Hollywood, the glamour of being seen by others in a certain way, the virtue of education, which only leads to self-worship, the honor of sacrifice, which places you on a moral pedestal. These are all things which Satan seeks to use, which Satan uses to disguise himself even, that we would call good things that he uses to attract, but ultimately even to destroy people. The satanic and demonic function is to destroy and to distort God and His image. Whatever power you think you may have in yourself to withstand Satan's temptations and his attacks is a false hope. Jesus is our only hope. That is the beauty of it all. Jesus is not some far-off God. He is not someone we need to summon to arrive on the other side of the lake to arrive. By the Holy Spirit, Christ is ours. Christ has promised that He has already judged Satan and His sentencing awaits. And until then, Christ, excuse me, and, and until then, Satan is put on the leash of Jesus Christ. As we'll see in just a few moments, any affliction which we face, any trials which may come our way, are then at the approval of the Lord over the spiritual world. Let me say that one more time. Any afflictions which we face, any trials which come our way, are then at the approval of the Lord over the spiritual world. This changes how we see not only that which opposes God's people, but how we learn to wait and to trust. 
He is Lord over the physical and the natural world. He is Lord over the spiritual world. And then he's saying here also that he is Lord over death and illness. There in this last section that we already read at the beginning concerning Jairus' daughter and concerning this woman who was bleeding. The woman had seen all the physicians. She had certainly tried all the remedies. That which by all accounts was unhealable, Christ heals with a mere passive moment of contact. With the daughter of Jairus, she was not only on her way toward death, but had actually died. Jesus' comment about her being asleep is not in light of the fact that she was just somehow just unconscious, but was highlighting how she was about to be awakened back unto life. If you Luke, in Luke chapter 8, gives his account and underscores this as well. This is all under the lordship of Jesus. He is larger than life. Not one raindrop falls without the knowledge and will of our God. Not one temptation or attack of Satan can take place without God giving permission. Not one molecule of a disease can enter into our bodies. No one can take their final breath without Jesus allowing it to take place. But what does this mean to a people who are watching the news? And seeing the destruction and confusion in Afghanistan. What does this mean when we hear of earthquakes shaking the foundations of Haiti? What does this mean with now over 210 million cases of COVID worldwide and 4.4 million reported deaths? It means Jesus is doing something. We know that, that comforting promise from Romans 8. That God works all things together for good for those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. The suffering which is known, the pain which is experienced, the hurt which takes place, is somehow, if we believe Romans 8 is true, is somehow forming and shaping God's people. To press them closer to the side of their Savior, to make them more like the one who sought them and purchased them, to carry out the purposes of a God whose will we cannot fully comprehend, but whom we know to be good. There are mysteries which God alone owns and possesses, which we will never know on this side of eternity. But we know God is perfecting His people. We know God is sovereign over nature, over the spiritual world, and over death and disease. And we know God is good. We know that because He gave His one and only Son so that you and I, that we could have eternal life. He gave up Jesus Christ to the cross of Calvary. He knows loss. He knows suffering. He knows these things. As His Son bore the penalty that you and I deserve. But Christ is Lord. He goes on, even in these passages as well, to not just see that He is Lord over all, but that He is so far greater than what we know and see. His superiority, His transcendence over all things. There's a 
a theme that runs throughout Scripture that is mainly highlighted in the book of Leviticus, actually. And it especially concerns the people of Israel. And it's that of, of, being, of the unclean or the clean. Even right here in, in Mark, there's, uh, there, there's so many different examples of it. But the un, when something is unclean, uh, Scripture lists a number of different things that they in and of themselves are unclean. It could be like a, a corpse, uh, a, uh, a, you know, pigs and certain animals which would be unclean, uh, Gentiles, lepers. But it wasn't just these things, it was also what touched these things. That uncleanness was transferable. And then there was also the clean. These, a number of things, if you had a disease, you were restored to health, you could be considered clean at that point. It wasn't necessarily a moral thing, but it's just you are not unclean any longer. And then, aside from that, there's the whole clean and unclean, and then right, along, right next to it, throughout Leviticus as well, is the idea of the common versus, and the holy. You think of in the, in the tabernacle or in the temple, there were some items that would be used. Some of them were holy. They were set apart for certain purposes of worship. Those that were in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, among others. And then there were just, there's like a regular spoon. It's, it's not holy, it's just a common spoon. It's not unclean or anything, it's, it's common. There are holy items and common items. Holy people, even like priests, and then common people. And on and on it goes. Unclean and clean, holy and common. In these passages... We have a man possessed by an unclean spirit who was living in the tombs, corpses. This community had a large herd of pigs. There is the woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, which makes her unclean, according to Leviticus 15. She was unable to worship at the temple or the synagogue, unable to be around any family. Plus there is Jairus' daughter who is obviously sick, but then is dead, unclean. In fact, understand this whole idea of, of transferring, actually in the, in the prophet Haggai, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, uh, Haggai is actually here, he is uh, condemning the priests of Judah and with their wickedness, but yet they continue to perform uh, temple functions. And he says this to them, we have the, the slide for this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If anyone carries holy meat, so meat that would be used for sacrificial purposes, in the fold of his garment, and touches with the fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind, does it become holy? Does the holiness transfer? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Saying that the, the sacrifices that the priests are making because the priests themselves are unclean, they're actually transferring their uncleanliness to the items that they are using for worship. The priests defiled the worship. Think of it this way as well. After the service, 
if I go into the foyer and I get a cup of coffee and I am not careful with this cup of coffee and I spill it on my shirt. I'm like, oh no, I got this big stain on my shirt. And so I take my shirt and I go up to someone and say, hey, I have coffee on my shirt. Can I wipe it on your shirt to get it off? I'm not going to become any more clean, but what's going to happen is their shirt is now going to become dirty. It's the uncleanness that is transferred. And so we have just this litany of, of folks that are filled with uncleanness. And then it is Jesus who goes to the country of the Gerasenes, to the man with the unclean spirit. He goes to the woman with the discharge of blood who touches Jesus. Jesus takes the little girl's hand in verse 41 as she is dead. Jesus goes to his country, is touched by the unclean woman, touches the hand of the little girl. Was Jesus made unclean? No. In fact, each one of them was made clean, was made well. The holiness and greatness of Jesus is not subjected to the uncleanliness of demons, of pigs, of disease, of death, nor of sin or of iniquity. We, like the man in the tombs, like the bleeding woman and like Jairus' daughter, we have an unclean problem. Ezekiel 36 talks about how we have unclean hearts that need to be sprinkled clean from their idols. And 1 Peter 2.24 says that Jesus bore our sins. He touched, took on our sins in His body on the tree, it says. Jesus took them on. He touched what was unclean. And just like in Mark 5, the touch of Jesus changes us. 1 John 1.7 says, The blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Jesus Christ is greater than any kind of unclean distinction that is here. Jesus Christ is greater than, superior than, transcendent over. His holiness is so great that it takes the unclean and makes it clean. There is no one that is so far that Jesus Christ cannot make clean. And Mark provides us with the necessary response to all this. Do not fear, but believe. Quickly, the response of, of faith versus fear. Even what Jesus said to his disciples when he's there in the boat, in, in Mark 4, verse 40, he says to them, Why are you so afraid? This is after he's calmed the storm. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Fear is allowing the waves to rule your emotions. Fear is subconsciously believing that Jesus is subject to the waves. Fear is believing that God will allow us to endure pain and suffering that has no purpose. Fear is believing that God has forgotten about you. Did you catch that moment when Jairus 
He's, he's got Jesus. He, he has Jesus' attention. Jesus is going with Jairus to his, to his home to go heal his daughter, and Jesus stops. He stops in the middle and says, and says who touched me? Uh, have you ever been, like, you needed someone to pick you up for something, and you were already running late? They pick you up and say, hey, before we get there, I need to make a quick stop real quick. I'm already late. I need to get there. And, I mean, I, I'll freak out over that. I can't imagine what Jairus is thinking right now. He has his daughter, his 12-year-old daughter that, in his mind, is about to die at any moment. And Jesus stops and says, oh, who, who touched me? I can't imagine the frustration that would be welling up within him. Fear is frustrated by the timing of God. That if you think what is ultimately happening, and we can look on on this side of this passage, that if Jairus is seeing that and he sees Jesus heal this woman, his faith ought to be encouraged. Seeing Jesus' power on display, they're on their way to see his dying daughter, and he sees Jesus healing this woman. But instead, I know if I'm I'm him, I'm frustrated. I'm saying, what is taking you so long? Why would you stop for her? Fear is frustrated by the timing of God. But instead, we believe that God is indeed sovereign over everything and everywhere that he says he is sovereign over. And timing is not an issue. Instead, we're called to faith. And faith, we see over and over again, results in the power of Jesus Christ. Faith results in the power of Jesus Christ. Acts 1.8, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power to endure whatever storms life is throwing at you. Power to overcome whatever spiritual forces are upon you. Power to not allow sickness and death to define you, but to overcome sickness and death at the resurrection of Christ, at the resurrection of all things. Even as we close, I want you to hear these words from the author of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, which I believe just perfectly encapsulates what, what is taking place here in our passage and what our response needs to be. Author, he tells the church, says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In just a few moments, after we close in prayer, and we'll uh, begin to sing, and we'll take communion. When we partake of, of the bread and the cup, it is an opportunity for us to express faith. Yes, we eat with our mouths the bread and, and the juice, but... As has been put before, ultimately, we eat with the mouth of faith. We eat in belief, trusting that the payment which Christ has offered on our behalf is sufficient for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, I pray, Lord, that uh, we would 
and see your sovereignty, see your power, Lord, and we would fall down and worship you. Lord, in the middle of everything, God, there are things going on in folks' lives, Lord, that I know are hard, and you know, more importantly, are hard. And Lord God, I just pray that by your Holy Spirit, that you would comfort all of us with the knowledge and the truth of who our Savior is, one who loves us, one who is sovereign over the wind and the waves, over sickness and death, over the spiritual world, and who loves us. Encourage us with this truth. In Christ's name, amen.